It's good to be with you on this Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas to you. Glad to gather with you. If you're a guest here this morning, just so glad that you came, whether you came with family or friends or are just checking out a local church in the area. We're just grateful to be able to worship with you on this Christmas Eve. As Kylia mentioned, we do have the kids' bulletins in the back. I just encourage you uh, not just to let your kids walk through that and fill that out during the sermon today, but actually to engage them with that uh, as you go home today and this week and just talk to them about what they learned and what they uh, got from the sermon this morning as we walk in and walk through uh, God's Word this morning. So grateful to gather with you on this Christmas Eve. If you need a copy of the Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand, uh, Matt will bring a copy of the Scriptures around to you. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us out of the Bible. And so just raise your hand and keep it up till he finds you. And feel free to take that home with you. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to take that home. It's our gift to you uh, so that you can have God's Word all throughout the week as well. As we get ready to open up to the Scriptures, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless our time. Father, this morning we come before You and we just ask simply this, that You would be exalted today. We pray that Your name would be made much of today. With all of the craziness of the Christmas season, I pray that now as we open up Your Word, that You would calm and quiet our minds, our heart, our soul that we might be attentive today to your word. That as we open up your word and even look at what is maybe familiar to some of us and new to others of us, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts and that what we would leave here today with is joy. What we leave here today with is a stirring of our heart, our love for you as we walk into tomorrow Christmas Day and all throughout this week, that our minds and our hearts would be set on you. Our gaze would be on you. And that we would live lives of worship. We wouldn't just worship now as we sing songs. We wouldn't just worship now as we hear your word preached. That our whole life would be oriented towards worshiping you. So Father, we pray by the power of your spirit this morning as we open up your word, as we talk about Christ and how he has come into this world, that you would draw us ever closer to you. Help us to know your presence this morning transform our lives this morning. We pray that you would do a work and that you would get all the glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've got three kids, as some of you know, and my two boys uh, share a bedroom. And there's a picture that sits in their room that's a really special picture to me and to our family. It's a picture of my grandfather, my dad, my oldest son, Owen, and me. And it's a special picture. We took this picture in May of 2010, about six weeks after my son Owen was born. And it's special because just a few months after this, my grandfather passed away. And I love that he got to meet his first great-grandson. It's a special picture because in this picture, there's four generations of Pearson men together. Four generations in one picture. I mean, that's kind of crazy the lifetimes that will likely span some 170 years, all in one photograph. The family histories are interesting. For a lot of us in Western culture and in 2017, we oftentimes don't care very much about our family heritage or history. But in a lot of cultures throughout the world today and throughout history, people have cared greatly about their generations, where their family has come from, who their family is. Because a family history says a lot about who you are. 
It tells a story. There's a history there. Oftentimes, people believe it tells you a lot about who you will become. A family's generational history could be a source of pride and prestige, or for others, a source of shame and embarrassment. Well, today we're going to do something maybe a little bit unusual for a Christmas Eve sermon. We're going to look at the generational history of Jesus by looking at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, what we're going to see through this, through this genealogy, tucked into this story of Jesus' family, is a story of grace. And it's a story of hope. And it's a story of grace and a story of hope. Yes, in a genealogy, for every person in this room this morning, for every people group in the world. And I hope that what it's going to do in your heart, in my heart, in our hearts together is allow you, is cause you, as I prayed, to leave today rejoicing. Leave today with joy in your heart, praising God for what he has done in and through Christ. But it won't just be today. Because that will happen tomorrow and the day after. Seeing the greatness and loving kindness of our God who loves us so much that he made himself known to us through his Son. So go ahead and open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And we're actually going to read all of Matthew chapter 1 this morning. So may God bless the preaching of his word and me as I try to read all of these names. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar. And Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man 
and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I made it through. You know, there's a lot of genealogies in the Bible. We can go back to the Old Testament. There's another genealogy of Jesus' life and his family in the book of Luke. And if we're honest, if you read the Bible often and we get to those genealogies, what do we most of the time do? We skip over them, right? <laughs> we, we start and we try and just like, well, I'm kind of reading and my eyes are going over the names, but I don't know how to say most of them, so I just kind of breeze through them. But we have to think about something. If a genealogy is in Scripture, and we believe that Scripture is God's word to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit from beginning to end, then there has to be an important reason why these genealogies are in the Bible. They're not just nice piece of information, not just a historical account. There has to be some purpose to the story of God that he's relating to us in the scriptures for why he would include this, these gene- genealogies in the scriptures. Right away in verse 1, we get the point of the genealogy that follows. It says that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what, what is Matthew saying by saying this? Well, two very important and profound things. First, by being called the son of David, he's making the claim that Jesus is a king. Jesus is a king. By calling him the son of Abraham, he's saying that Jesus is a child of promise. So let's unpack that a bit. In verse 17, Matthew breaks down this genealogy into these chunks of 14 generations. And in the midst of this long list of names, some people in this list are known to us, and some of them are unknown. But all of them play a part. All of them play a part in this unfolding story of grace. Within this, these three sets of 14 generations are four major markers, four major categories that we can walk through. Abraham, David, the exile, and finally Jesus. Abraham's story is so rich. It's so good. Most of it, all of it takes place in the book of Genesis, the very beginning of Genesis. We see this unfolding of the story of Abraham, and we walk through a bit of that as we have been in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, as the author of Hebrews recounts and tells the story of Abraham. But Abraham wasn't a worshiper worshiper of God, but God came to him. God called Abraham out of his homeland to go to a land that he would show him. He didn't tell him where he was going to go. He just said, I will go with you, and this is where I want you you to pick up everything, and I want you to go. And so by faith, Abraham went, and he took his family with him, who at that point just consisted of his wife, Sarah, and a nephew and some people that worked with him and for him. But in the midst of this journey, God tells Abraham that he's going to bless him. And he says he's going to bless him in three specific ways. He says, first, Abraham, I'm going to bless you with more descendants than there are stars in the sky. He tells him, I mean, you're going to be the father of many nations. 
He tells him that he will bless his people with a special place. And lastly, he promises to Abraham that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But in order for this to take place, there has to be a child. At this point in time, when God makes these promises to Abraham, they don't have any children. And so, built into this promise, what God's saying to Abraham is, I'm going to give you a child, a child of promise. But in the midst of this, Abraham isn't perfect. He gets impatient with God and his timing. And so he tries to take things into his own hands. But God is gracious and God is merciful and God is faithful to his plans and his purposes. And even though Abraham sinned, God still provided a child of promise. He provided his son Isaac. But we look at Isaac's life and we find that Isaac isn't a perfect person either. He's oftentimes fearful. He lacks faith as well. And his children after him always didn't walk in great faithfulness either. But God continued the family line. And through that family, we get to David. It says David is the son of Jesse. Now David wasn't the most outstanding of his brothers. If you know the story of David's life, Samuel, the prophet, comes to anoint a new king over Israel. And Samuel goes to David's family, and and David's father, Jesse, brings out all of his sons, and Samuel goes down the line. He's like, nope, 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 none of those guys. Do you have anybody else? He's like, well, yeah, I've got this other son, but he's out in the field. You probably don't really want to look at him. Like he's small, and, and, and his father doesn't think much of him to even bring him out before the prophet, who he might be king. Like the father's already thinking, no, it's not this one, surely not this one. But David comes and Samuel sees him and the Lord says to Samuel, no, this is the one. And he anoints David as king over Israel. But if that's not enough, when David finally does become king after the death of Saul, God makes an enormous promise to David. David wants to build a house for God. He wants to build a temple for God. And God says to David, that's good, David, but you're not going to be the one that does it. And instead of you doing something for me, let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God says, In your house, David, your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promises to David that he's going to establish his kingdom forever through his line. There would never be a son of David lacking on the throne as the king of God's people. But as God promised this to him, what was In this promise is that the Messiah, the rescuer of God's people, would come through David's line. That would be the king that they're longing for and waiting for. What an amazing promise. But just four short chapters later in the book of 2 Samuel, we see that David also is not a perfect person. David's not on guard and has become lazy and gives into temptation and sin. He commits adultery and murder. David the king, David the man after God's own heart, sinned against his God. Yet God continued the line, and Solomon was born, and he became king. And what follows in our text here this morning in Matthew chapter 1 is a list of kings that come in the line of David. Some are faithful, and many are unfaithful. Yet the family line continues. But we come to this place where because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, they're actually exiled to Babylon. They're taken out of their place that God had given to them because they walked in disobedience instead of obedience. And so God removes them from this place to Babylon, as Matthew points out in verse 11. 
In the exile of God's people, it serves as another marker in this genealogy. So we have Abraham, we have David, and here we have the exile. But what we see in this is there isn't much really said about it here. God's people during this exile period. In fact, most scholars think that some people are actually jumped over. Generations are even skipped in this genealogy during the exile period because of their disobedience. Generations are jumped until we get to Zerubbabel, who actually leads God's people back, who's one of the first people back from exile. But even when God's people returned from exile, they found themselves back in the place that God had promised to him, it still felt like exile. Things weren't quite the way that they used to be. They weren't quite the way they were supposed to be. Because it seemed like the promise made to Abraham and the promises made to David, they all seemed lost. And God effectively becomes silent for some 400 years. No prophet comes to the people of God. Most of the names listed after Zerubbabel are unknown. They're unknown to us because they live during these years of silence. Yet even during this time, a king still remained over Israel. But an interesting fact about this is the last 200 years before Jesus was born, the king who was on the throne in Israel didn't come from David's line. In fact, the king who was on the throne when Jesus was born, Herod, wasn't even fully Jewish. He was an opportunist who the Romans had made king over the people of Israel. So there's this longing, this waiting for this king to come. And then we come to Jesus. Then we learn a bit more about him and his birth in verses 18 through 25. Let me read him again for us. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The truth that's contained in these verses is enormous. Just to give us a little background about what's going on here, Mary and Joseph are betrothed to one another. Betrothal is a fancy word for engagement, but betrothal or engagement in Jewish culture is very different than what it is in our own culture. If someone breaks an engagement in our culture, there's nothing that comes along with that, no legal ramifications that are tied to that. Sure, there's lots of heartache and heartbreak that will come from that, but there's no legal ramifications. But in Jewish culture, to be engaged or betrothed was a formal, legal, binding arrangement. A Jewish man and a Jewish woman would be legally bound together, even at this point, being called husband and wife. But for this betrothal period, the two wouldn't live together. In fact, the woman oftentimes would stay with her parents for up to a year. And once the betrothal period was done, then the wedding ceremony happened, the marriage would be in full force, and the marriage would be consummated at that point. Because the engagement was legal and formal then, the only way to break an engagement was essentially to get divorced. 
So Joseph and Mary are legally betrothed. They're engaged to one another. At this point, she's living with her parents. The marriage hasn't been consummated. But what does Matthew tell us? He tells us this young woman who is still a virgin is pregnant with a child. And this child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's good information for us. But at this point, her soon-to-be husband doesn't know that. So you can imagine he'd be upset about that. He'd be uncertain about that. So seeking to honor her amidst his own confusion and disarray and dismay, he decides to divorce her quietly. But since Joseph doesn't know the whole story, God steps in. God sends a messenger to Joseph, an angel, just like he had sent to Mary. And he says to Joseph, Mary's not a liar. She's not delusional. She's telling the truth, Joseph. This is a work of the Lord, Joseph. It's a miraculous thing. The Holy Spirit has enabled Mary to become pregnant with this child. What he's communicating to Joseph is don't fear, don't despair. This is from God. But the angel doesn't stop there. He tells Joseph more. And it's good news not only for Joseph, but for the whole world. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph, do you get this? This child conceived by the Holy Spirit, it's not just any child. Mary's going to have a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he's going to save his people. This is the, the Messiah you've been longing for, the Savior you've been longing for for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is him. What amazing news to hear. But here's the question for us today. Why does Matthew not start this account of Jesus' life in verse 18? Why does he start this whole gospel account of Jesus' life with this genealogy? Because it seems like the exciting news is in verses 18 through 25 and beyond. Why does he start with the genealogy? Well, first off, what we have to understand is that the Jewish people kept extensive genealogies. They kept extensive genealogies to establish a person's heritage, inheritance, legitimacy, and rights. And so what Matthew doing, is doing here is essential. He's establishing that Jesus isn't a fairy tale. He's not a figment of someone's imagination. He is a real person with a verifiable history and family line. Just like that picture of the four generations of Pearsons. If that picture is preserved years from now, if my son Owen shows that picture to his grandchildren, then what he can show them in that is, look, it's not just me, it's not just you. We come from a long line of Pearsons. And this family line shows that Jesus comes from this long line of David's line, which means that he has a right to the throne. He has a right to be king. See, what Matthew is declaring in all of this is this. See, Jesus isn't just a king. He isn't just a son of David. He is the king. And he has come to rule and reign forever. Jesus isn't just a son of Abraham. He isn't just a child of promise. He is the child of promise who would bring blessing to the world. This genealogy all the way back to verse 1 proclaims to us and to the world that this is a new beginning. And what we can't miss or overlook in all of this is the peculiarity, the strangeness, though, of Jesus' family tree. I mean, one of the first things that jumps out to me from this is that there are five women mentioned in this genealogy. Oftentimes, as you look at genealogies in the Bible, no women are mentioned at all. So again, if we believe this is God's word, then there has to be some purpose behind that. It's peculiar, but it's with a purpose. 
Now here's something else to note with this. If we even look at those five women, we have to ask ourselves, why are those five women mentioned? There's other well-known women in the history of God's people, and they're not listed. Sarah's name is not in here. Rebecca's name is not in here. Why these five women? There's a purpose behind it. First, we have to realize that four out of these five women are not Jewish. They come from a different culture, a different heritage, a different ethnicity. Right away, what we see in that is that there's an impure bloodline in Jesus' family tree. It's not fully Jewish. Yet he's claiming right to the throne. It'd be like a British royal family marrying someone who's not of royal lineage. Or if, you were, uh, if you're fans of Downton Abbey, it's like when Sybil married Tom the chauffeur, right? Like everybody's upset about that because it's not from the right family. It's not from the right family line. That would be scandalous for the religious right of their day. They'd be scandalized by that. To look over this list about Jesus, this one who would say came to save his people from their sin, this one who we say is the king on the throne who's David in David's line, that he would come from this kind of family tree. That would be scandalous to the religious right. People that look different than you, come from a different heritage than you. And to be honest, I think sometimes the religious right also would be offended today. That the savior of the world would come through a line that isn't exclusively Jewish. No one was expecting that. No one would expect it. But that's not the only scandalous thing about Jesus's family tree. As one scholar writes, Jesus did not belong to the nice clean world of middle class respectability, but rather he belonged to a family of murderers, cheats, cowards, adulterers, and liars. Jesus' family tree is full of the sexually immoral, outcasts, and foreigners. It's full of the powerful and the poor. It's full of faithful and unfaithful kings, and it's full of faithful and unfaithful common people. Simply put, this is a family tree filled with scoundrels and sinners. This wasn't the family you would expect to see the son of David, the son of Abraham, who would save his people from their sins to come from. So what does all this show us? First, it shows us that no one can derail God's plans and purposes in redeeming the world from sin. Back in Genesis chapter 3, God promised that a seed of, of Eve, a child of Eve, would come to crush the head of the serpent. A child would come to defeat Satan and sin forever. And in this list, it looks like, man, there's lots of opportunities to get off track, lots of opportunities to derail that. Yet God is faithful to his plans. He's faithful to see reconciliation and restoration happen. What we see in this genealogy that God preserves his people to bring about the promised Messiah. The one who would not be destroyed by sin, but the one who would destroy sin. But there's also something else it shows us. It shows us a picture of who Jesus saves and how Jesus saves. A picture of who Jesus saves and how Jesus saves. The lineage of Jesus shows us exactly the kind of people Jesus came to save. All different kinds of imperfect people from king to common who don't have it all together. As one pastor recently put it, Matthew's genealogy includes the outcast, scandalous, and foreigner. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. Jesus comes from a long line of sinners. There's no pattern of righteousness in the line of Jesus. In fact, what we see in this is a long list of people who are in need 
of the gift of righteousness that comes from Jesus. See, this genealogy screams at us that Jesus doesn't come for the neat and tidy. He doesn't come for those whose lives are all cleaned up and look nice. No, he comes for the broken and the desperate. And the reality is every last person in this room this morning, every last person in the world, regardless of your outward appearance, regardless of your prestige, your pedigree, your buying power, all of us are broken. All of us are broke. All of us are desperate for grace. All of us are in need of rescue. So this is not a fairy tale with some perfect family. It's a real life story of brokenness and a real life story of redemption. And the beauty of Matthew chapter 1, what we celebrate at Christmas, is that Jesus enters into all of it. He enters into the brokenness to redeem people out of that brokenness. He doesn't remain distant. He doesn't phone it in. He is God with us. Which leads to our next big takeaway, our other big takeaway. It not only shows us who Jesus saves, it also shows us how Jesus saves. I mean, who is Jesus? He's the eternal Son of God. He was in the beginning. The world was made through him and for him. Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus holds all things together. There was never a time when he was not. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yet, how he saves us is by moving from king to common to save king to common. Philippians chapter 2 says that he is God but that he humbled himself and as a servant took on humanity. And so the birth of Christ into this world from this family tree is a picture of a marvelous condescension. I mean, I think it's interesting for us that we oftentimes think it's so fun and so great when a famous person interacts with common people in a common way. Right? I'm not talking about when you go down the autograph line or someone's just shaking hands with you or something like that. I mean, a famous person interacting with common people in a common way. An example of that, when, when President Obama was in the White House, one of his favorite places to go eat was Good Stuff Eatery on Capitol Hill. Great burger place. But you know what? I've eaten there too. Like I've, sitting, I've sat at the same table that maybe he sat at and he would go there and just eat with his staff and people that he worked with in this restaurant that any of us can go in sitting around and eating good cheeseburgers and milkshakes. We're like, wow, that's so great. He would just be there. He's just like one of us. But here in this picture, what we see is we don't just have a president. We have the God of all creation, the God of the universe becoming one of us. See, God preserves his people in order to rescue his people. But he does so by sending his son as one of his people. That's insane. It's the greatest paradox of all time. That God reconciles a jacked up world. God reconciles a screwed up world and it begins with the promise of in the birth of a child. I mean, to be human is to be vulnerable, but to be born as a child, to be a baby is the ultimate picture of vulnerability. And what we see in this text is that Jesus not only enters into the story, he actually transforms what it means to exist, what it means to be human, to be alive, to be free. Because see, Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And he did so by taking on humanity, living a perfect life in obedience to the Father. That he willingly went to a cross to bear the weight of our sin and rebellion against God. He and no other will save his people from their sins because he and no other is able to. See, friends, what should startle us most about the story of Jesus' birth isn't 
that he was born of a virgin, though he was. What should startle us most about the story of Jesus' birth is that God didn't abandon us to ourselves. No, he stepped into this broken world in the fullness of time, not when we had it all figured out, but exactly because we couldn't. The king of the inverted kingdom of God comes to invert all of creation, bringing restoration to a seemingly unrestorable world. And he does it in the way we would least expect. See, when we look at this genealogy in Matthew 1, what we have to see is that Jesus isn't just one family member in the long list of family members. He is the goal of the list. And he came to save his people from their sins. This long list and people just like them like you, like me. Friends, this family tree shows us there's no prerequisite then for salvation. It's for men and women. Men and women from every tribe, every language, and every nation. For all ethnicities and socioeconomic statuses. It's why the angels came to the shepherds and declared, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For all the people, for unto you the world is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The gospel, this good news of Christ coming into the world is for all people and sinners of all types. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. So listen, if you don't truly know Jesus, or maybe some of you are here this morning and you think you have a relationship with Christ, but you know about him, but you don't actually know him. You don't have an actual faith in him. And this is what Christmas is about. And what the family tree of Jesus shows you, what verse 21 tells you, is that no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what you look like, God's grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is sufficient for you. No one is too far gone. No one has sinned too greatly to be rescued. Jesus identifies with you in your brokenness and came to rescue you out of it. It's grace, grace upon grace to you. Listen, the world will continue to reject Jesus, but you don't have to. You don't have to. So on this Christmas, believe in him today. Place your faith in Jesus today. He is God with us and he came to save you. He came to redeem you. Now, if you do know Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus, this is what Christmas is about. The king of all creation became a common man to rescue kings to common men and women. Like you, like me. So rejoice in that. Reflect on that reality. May your heart be stirred to worship. Don't allow this amazing news to become old news to you. Not only this Christmas, but through your whole life. That you were a sinner, separated from God, lost and alone in this world, but Christ came into the world to save you and people just like you. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. So rejoice in that today and then go. Go and tell your neighbors. Go and tell the world for the rest of your life. What amazing, unfathomable grace. And praise God for his loving kindness towards people like Jesus' family. People like you and me. Every week at Sojourn, we take communion together. Because every week, we need to be reminded of the grace of the gospel.
And today we get to eat the bread and drink the cup because Jesus came. Because Jesus gave gave himself for us. His body was broken. His blood was shed so that you, so that I might be called a child of God. That we might be adopted into his family. And so this Christmas Eve, may this be an act of worship for you as you reflect on the reality that Christ came into the world to save you. And then let's lift our voices in song to our God and King. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad you're here this morning. I'm so glad that you came with a family member or a friend. I'm so glad that you're just here all by yourself. I'm glad that you got to hear this this morning because this is the good news that we believe. But if you're not yet a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion. Not because we're trying to be exclusive in this moment, but because this doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And so we want you to take Christ. So if you don't yet know Christ, just hang in your seat as everybody's kind of moving around. Just pray to God. Ask him to reveal himself to you. And if you're ready to start a relationship with Jesus, to place your faith in Christ and what he's done for you, then tell God that this morning. And then let somebody around you know so that we can journey with you in what it looks like to know and follow Christ. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the tables in the back. Tear off a piece of bread, take a small cup to drink, and what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks because, Lord, you have done great things for your people. You've done great things for us. You sent your Son to rescue us us, to save us from our sin, from king to common person, all people, to bring people to yourself. You sent your son. And Lord, we don't want that to be old news to us. We don't want that to be something that just easily kind of flows out of our mouth without impacting our hearts. May we never lose the awe of Christmas, that Christ entered into the brokenness, taking it on to save people who are broken, which is all of us. Lord, we praise you for your grace. We pray that you would help us to remember it, to reflect on it, to rejoice, to be overwhelmed by it, and to worship you, and then to go and tell the world. Father, we praise you this morning. Help us to continue to worship you now as we take communion and sing of the greatness of who you are and who Christ is. We pray this all in his name. Amen.